Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 2 Samuel. If you have your Bible, of course you have your Bible. Open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be looking this morning at the fall and the restoration of a king. But one of the things that is just so important is that King David was a faithful king. He was a faithful believer. And so as we look at the life of David, this really is a story, is a message to you and I, those of us who know the Lord, who have committed ourselves to following Jesus, we are going to see just an incredible thing, an unbelievable event that happened in the life of David. You know, this is a, a faithful man. He's, he just has a track record. As you look at David's life and, and you watch him, he has a track record of humility and of faithfulness. And it just like, as you read the account of him being chosen to be the next king, all of his brothers are lined up for Samuel to, to look at and say, okay, which one's gonna be the next king? And they didn't even bring David. They left him out in the field taking care of the sheep. And God says, no, bring David And then he says that God doesn't look at the outside like everyone else. God looks at the heart. And he chooses David to be the next king. Many people don't realize this, but in in David's life, he's actually chosen to be the next king before the whole event with David and Goliath happens. So, So David has already been selected as the next king. Then you have the event with David and Goliath. You have all these amazing things that David does. And you have Saul, the reigning king, who is this evil, wicked king who disobeys God, dishonors God. And when people confront him in his sin, he always blames somebody else or he whitewashes his sin. Like, like God tells him not to, to, to wipe out all the animals. And then, and then when the priest comes to confront King Saul, King Saul says, oh, no, God, I only disobeyed so that I could sacrifice. I disobeyed so I could worship you. And so you look at Saul, and he's this wicked man. David is a faithful servant, the anointed king. And yet as Saul tries to kill him, David refuses to ever raise his hand against Saul. He has many opportunities to kill Saul, and he refuses to do it. He just says, God, that is God's anointed king. I will not raise my hand against the anointed king. And so you just, you look at this life of David. He's so faithful. He's so diligent. He's so humble. And God just blesses him everywhere he goes. And so as we come to this story and we see the fall of King David and we see his restoration, this is actually unthinkable. It's, it's unexpected. Nobody would expect an event like this in the life of David. And that's one of the things for us to consider this morning is that this is a, powerfully, a powerful story. What, what David does is so wicked on so many levels If you think about, if you really think about, as we read through this story, if you really think about what exactly David does, it it, it will fill you with disgust. You will think to yourself, how could God ever forgive somebody who did something like that? You know, we, we hear this story so often, and it kind of can become whitewashed in our mind. Oh, yeah, David and Bathsheba, and God forgave David. But if you really think about what David did, it's, it's unimaginable that God would forgive him. 
And yet we see the power of God's forgiveness in his life. When we look at how faithful David was and where he ended up, it just reminds us that if something like this could happen to David, it could happen to any of us. You see, as Christians, we're aware of God's grace. And in Romans chapter 5, it talks about how the more we sin, the more of God's grace there is for our sin. In fact, uh, Romans chapter 6 verse 1 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? There's always grace to cover our sin, and yet as believers, we are to live a faithful life. We are to obey God. God's grace and God's forgiveness is not an excuse to walk off into sin. It does not minimize the power of sin. And so for believers, we are committed to faithfulness and righteousness like you see in King David's life in his younger years. But the the reality that we all live with is that sin is a struggle. We do struggle with sin. In fact, it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, this is the Apostle Paul talking about himself, and he says this, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You know, Paul talks about this struggle with sin. And one of the things that I think is really important for us to to consider and to think through is what is the difference between faithful believers who struggle with sin, who sometimes do terrible things, and the times like, for example, with the Pharisees, where the living out of sin in their life was actually an expression that they did not know God. So what's the difference between a believer who can do terrible things and a person living a life of sin that just testifies that they don't know God? And I want to make sure that you don't miss it, so I'm just going to give you the punchline right now. For David... Contrast between him and Saul. When he was in sin, he was internally convicted. He felt guilty. He could not sleep because of his sin. Now, by the way, as we read this story, that was not evident to anyone from the outside. Nobody would look at David's life and say, there's a man under conviction. That was something that God was doing in his heart. A second thing that is a tremendous contrast between unfaithful, unspiritual people, which, by the way, it's in Matthew 7 where where Jesus says that you will know false teachers by their fruits. And so you identify, you look at the sin, and when you look at Jesus' ministry to the Pharisees and the way he addressed them and confronted their sin, what was the response when David was confronted? And the response when the Pharisees were confronted. See, when David was confronted, he fell on his face. He confessed his sin. He repented. He saw for what it was. When the Pharisees were confronted, they rationalized it away. They dismissed it, and they decided that they wanted to kill 
Jesus. See, believers can struggle with sin, but there is a very big difference between a person who lives a life of sin and feels like there's nothing wrong with it, there's no discipline from God, there's no conviction. They're living a sinful life and they are happy about it. Versus a person who falls into sin, they struggle, they're convicted, and when God sends someone to speak to them, they hear and they respond. Incredible story. One of the things that I love about Scripture is that this is a powerful historical record. And think about the honesty of Scripture, how the Bible is different from other histories, other religious books. And even when we think about the way people approach church history, you know, it's amazing some of the people in history, church history that we hold up and and we, we exalt and we feel like, oh man, this person's, we whitewash their life without looking at them and saying, yes, this thing they said was great, but this was a serious problem. You know, when you think about, let's just take Martin Luther, for example. He comes up with the solas, right? You know, only, only by faith, only, scripture alone, like these powerful solas. But he was anti-Semitic. He was a harsh, wicked person in many ways. And yet we can have a tendency to look at history and whitewash it. God doesn't do that. And that is so important Because you know what? When we look at the whitewashed history, we don't relate to that. And when we look at the life of King David, Scripture's brutally honest. It reports the things he did well as as, as well as owning up to the things that he did not do well. Now, there is a powerful lesson in that. In the same way that God can use this story in our life, God can use your story. We don't have to hide our sin, we don't have to whitewash our past, but we need to see it for what it is. And that's one of the things I think about for Michelle and I. We lived a sinful life for many years. And we took that and explained that to our kids. We told our kids the truth about it and tried to help them to see the pain and sorrow that came into our life because we disregarded God. So this is a powerful story and we don't whitewash history. We don't look into the past and fail to see from it what it is. And so we're going to see two, two things. This is a warning. This story is a warning and it is also an immense encouragement. The same steps that led David to destruction will lead you and I to destruction. And the same steps, the same path that David took to be restored is the same path that you and I can walk to be restored. So we're going to see two things this morning and uh, a bunch of sub points. But we're going to see two things. What are the foolish steps that led to compromise? We'll see that in chapter 11. And we're going to see what's the path to restoration. We'll see that from chapter 12. So let's begin reading. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 through 27. And we'll see these foolish steps. It says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. 
And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabob. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness, and then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. What an incredible story. Unbelievable that this would take place. Our technology is challenging sometimes. Get this. Amen. So what we see here with David is that it just says in the time when kings go out to battle, I think the first thing that we see is that we get into trouble when we fail to do the right thing. That may seem like a small compromise, but David was supposed to be going out to war. And this is one of those things that we see a lot of times you'll notice where it says um, in verse 2, it says, and it happened. I think one of the things that can be challenging for us is that we can feel like life is random. When things go wrong, when we fall into sin, sin is never random. It is never an accident. And in many cases, what goes wrong in our life goes wrong because we're not in the place we should be doing what we should be doing. You've heard of people, man, they were just at the wrong place at the wrong time. That's not an accident. And in this situation, that's one of the things that we see that David is compromising. Had he been out to war, he wouldn't have been on his roof looking at the wife of another man. And by the way, that wife was alone. Why? Because her husband was out to war where he was supposed to be, where he was supposed to be. And so David sees that, and compromise has already started in David's life. Now, when you think about Joseph, right? Joseph was in a similar situation. He's been enslaved. He's been put in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife sees Joseph, that he's attractive, and she's going after him day after day. And Joseph just says, no, I would never commit this terrible sin against God. Well, why is that? Why is it that David, when he looks over the wall and sees somebody else's wife, decides to send for her? And Joseph, when he's faced with the same situation, says no and runs out of the house. And, and it's because compromise starts small. For, for Joseph, he woke up in the day, every day and thought, how can I honor God in my life? That was his purpose. David had already started the path of not what is right, but what do I feel like doing and what do I want? 
It's interesting as you look at the story, he's like sleeping. David's like laying in bed. It says in verse 2, and it happened late one afternoon. So David's sleeping until noon and getting up instead of diligently doing what God has said he should do. And when you think about how bad what is about to happen is, David sends his servant. He's like, hey, who is this lady? And so when you think about this, David is actually, when you think about all the people that are brought into this sin, it's not this quiet thing. You've got David sending his servants to find out who this is and then to go get her and to bring her. And then you have Bathsheba, after she's pregnant, sending her servants to tell David, I'm pregnant. Like, when you think about, this is God's king. He's a person who's written psalms. He's the one who's supposed to rule on God's behalf, and he's living a sinful life, and they're bringing everybody into it. This is not a secret, quiet thing. The the idea that they are dishonoring God in front of everybody doesn't even hit their radar. And so David is going to do this terrible thing. He commits this sin. The second thing that we're going to see here is not only is he in the failing to do the right thing, but he is failing to avoid temptation. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You want to know what the most dangerous words anybody can say is? I can handle it. There's four of them. I can handle it. That is often what people say when they begin to walk down a path of compromise. Oh, no, it's okay. I can handle it. Uh, I remember talking to this kid one time who was just saying, man, I'm so frustrated with my parents. They try to pick my friends. I tell them, don't pick my friends. I can pick my own friends. And the parents are saying, well, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. And the kid's like, mom and dad, I can handle it. Anytime you or anybody else approaches life with the words, I can handle it, that is a guarantee that you are about to walk off a cliff. It's prideful, it's arrogant, Anytime a person does not live their life in fear of the power of sin, the temptation of Satan, and just says, I got to get away from that, I have to avoid that. If you're saying I can handle it in your life, you are definitely about to walk off a cliff. And David doesn't take temptation seriously. He walks right into it. Now, here's the powerful promise that comes in verse 13. Of 1 Corinthians 10, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So for Joseph, man, there was a way of escape. <laughs> there was a door, and he could run through it. But his heart was right, and that's the reason he ran through the door. For, for David, could he have resisted, resisted this temptation? Yes. But he had already begun, begun walking down the road to compromise. And so when this new compromise came, did God provide a way of escape? Absolutely. Just don't send for her. It's somebody else's wife. Done. But instead, he sends for her, and she ends up pregnant. 
Now, here's the, the devastating, difficult situation is David goes on, and he really is in this situation. He is in a no-win situation. Now, many people don't realize this, but, but David chooses to cover up his sin instead of repenting. He's done something unthinkable. Now, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He, he was a person willing to give his life for the king. David does this to his friend. He does it to his neighbor. He does it to a spiritually faithful man. And so he does. He commits this terrible sin. Now, here's the problem for David now. is What does he do now that this has happened? And by the way, Always we should repent from sin early. Uh, when David had just, if he would have repented for not going to war, that, like, who would have even known? And nobody would have judged him or been hard on him for that. But because he's compromised, because he has not addressed sin when it was small, he's now walking down a road to major sin in his life, and he's going to feel like there is no way out. I just want to ask you, have you ever got yourself into a situation where you've walked the road to compromise and you feel like there's no way out. If I don't lie, I'm in trouble. If I don't do additional sins, I, I just, I cannot face this. I cannot tell the truth about this. It could be somebody who cheats on their taxes. That's wrong. And then an IRS agent shows up and they're like, man, this is just too, the consequences would be too great. So they start scheming and, and coming up with some lies to try to justify their sinful behavior. Is there ever a time or a way in your life where you feel like I'm trapped and there's no way out? That is how David was feeling. You know, in Leviticus 20.10, it says, If a man commits adultery with, his, with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. You want to know what the consequences for what David did was? Death. Same thing for Bathsheba. Death. See, in the Old Testament, when it comes, came to adultery, if somebody committed adultery with somebody out in a field, only the man would be put to death. Do you know why? Maybe the woman was out there, and maybe he raped her, and he... Uh, committed adultery, and maybe she was an unwilling participant. And so since nobody would know, the man would be put to death. But if it happened in town, the man and the woman would be executed. Why? Because she could have called out. She could have screamed. She could have said, don't do this. Somebody help me. And, and when you think about what happened with Bathsheba, when David sent for her, um, she went. She didn't send servants back saying, King, I, I can't go. I'm married. When she was in David's palace, there's no record of her saying, No, David, don't do this terrible thing. That she was not screaming, saying, Somebody save me. The king is sinning against me. And so they're involved in this. There, there's no way out. So he feels trapped, and he's going to cover it up. And we'll see if further we'll feel trapped. Leviticus 24, 17 says, Whoever takes a human life will surely be put to death. So David's in a no-win situation. And uh, it's because he just keeps compromising. 
But I want to remind you of something that Jesus tells us or that God tells us. In Proverbs 28, 13, it says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Jesus said it this way in Luke 12, 2, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So David's in trouble, and he's about to, in an attempt to cover it up, make it much worse. Let's uh, read verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David uh, asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing out at the, and how the war was going. So David's now going to begin deception and dishonesty and lying. He's going to say to Uriah, hey, you're here because I kind of want to know how the battle's going. Is that why Uriah was there? No, it wasn't. And then he says to Uriah, verse 8, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So when David's sending Uriah home, he's saying, go home, relax, enjoy, sleep with your wife. Uh, Why? It's his attempt to cover up his sin. And then when you look at verse 9, you see Uriah's character contrasted with David, and, and it just makes David's sin so much more significant. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, did not go down into his house. And when they told David that Uriah did not go down into his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And look at what Uriah says. Uriah said to David, the ark, that's God's throne, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. They're out in tents. The, my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go into my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. He just says, we're supposed to be at war. I'm not going to relax and enjoy myself while everybody else is risking their lives in, his battle, in battle and in the field. Now think about the contrast between that and David. David was enjoying Uriah's wife while they were all out at, at battle. And so what does David do? Does David respect uh, Uriah's commitment and his character? No. Look what happens next in verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained at Jerusalem on that day and the next, and David invited him and ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. David gets Uriah drunk to try to get him to do to go sleep with his wife. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down into his house. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So now David is going to involve Joab, and he's going to say, Joab, kill Uriah for me. Send him out to where the battle is hard, and then when the fighting is fierce, pull away, and he'll be killed. 
And as we read the rest of this, of this chapter, we see that that is exactly what happened, and Uriah is killed. Okay, so he covers it up, and he got away with it. Nobody's going to know. Finally, David has got this thing taken care of. Uriah is dead. Nobody's going to know. Oh, wait. Well, there's the servants. There's Bathsheba's servants. And there's Joab. So, okay, well, some people know, I suppose. But David's okay. Because he's covered this up. The nation's not going to know. And he's going to skate by. And it'll all be okay. But here's the problem. He may have think he thinks he covered it up, but God sees. Uh, look at uh, verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that her, Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to her house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So now they're married, and now the son is going to be born, and nobody except that other list is going to know. But look what it says here. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That is a short, powerful statement. And it actually summarizes everything that is wrong in this situation. God knows. And God was not pleased. He didn't get away with it. And God knows. You know, a proper view of God is the greatest gift that any person can have, that you view God correctly, that you are living to please God is what will help you and what will guide you through life. The moment a reverence for God disappears from your life, you are headed for disaster. What does Proverbs say, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, fear and reverence for God. That's one of the problems with the way that people whitewash the Bible. And, and they'll take even stories like this and they ignore it. And you'll actually hear people who have not read the Bible, who don't think about God, who don't think about God's character, who don't think about the reverence that is due God. They don't think about that. And they'll say things like, oh yeah, I'm going to sin and it's okay because God will forgive me. And people devalue sin. They think it's insignificant, that it's no big deal. Oh, yeah, God says don't have sex until you're married. But, you know, it's no big deal. That's, that's like something old. I, I could do this. God says don't lie. Oh, well, well in some situations, lying's okay. And, and people disregard what God says. Oh, God's gracious and he's merciful and he's loving. And God says all these things about life, but just disregard that. It doesn't matter. Even if it's wrong, you could just confess it. Say you're sorry, and it'll all be okay. That's something that people who don't read the Bible, that's the way they approach life. And they, they don't understand, yes, God's grace and mercy is powerful, but God is to be reverenced. He expects to be obeyed. He demands to be obeyed. And yet you have people who call themselves Christians and they live with no reverence for God. There are parents who raise their kids not instilling in their children a reverence for God. There are people who disciple other people and do not instill a reverence for God. Reverence from God is the main thing you need in your life. 
And it is the single most important thing that we pass on to people that we are guiding and that we are shepherding. Even when it comes to theology today, there are so many times people will just read a passage and then just disregard it and say, no, I like a different doctrine. It doesn't match with what this verse says, but who cares? Because I pick the doctrines I like. There is no sense of reverence that God determines truth. God tells us what to do. We do not have the freedom to disregard what God says. Isn't that what Jesus said to the Pharisees? You teach as doctrines the precepts of men. You set aside my word for the traditions of men. And they live their life. David in this moment is living his life without reverence for God. That, that is um, a muted, inaccurate view of the God we serve, the terrifying God that we serve, who is also loving and gracious. And we're going to see this work its way out. Hebrews 4.12 just says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Before we move to chapter 12, um, Psalm 32 actually is a description of what's going on in David's life when nobody else would see. Psalm 32 says this in verse 3. David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. David is just saying, as he's living in sin, as he's hiding the sin, as he's covering it up, as everything from the outside looks okay, David says, I am dying on the inside. The conviction of the Holy Spirit, God working on his heart that he has dishonored and disobeyed God, that is the difference between the Pharisees that is the difference between a religious person and a person who loves the Lord. Sin is convicting. God's hand is powerfully on us. And what we're going to see is David is going to repent because of the way that Nathan approaches him. But we find out that God has been laying a foundation. He has been working on David's heart long before Nathan ever shows up. Which, by the way, is why we pray for each other. It's why we pray for our brothers and sisters when we see them wandering into sin. Because it's not our magic words. It's God's work in the heart that brings people to repentance. Look, let's look at the second thing that we'll see. We're going to look at uh, chapter 12 now. Just this amazing thing, the path to restoration, God helps through fellow believers. 
God helps through fellow believers. One of the things you need to think about in your life is God intends you sometimes to be the person who goes that helps other believers. And sometimes you're going to be the one that another believer goes to and God expects you to respond. By the way, there's all kinds of blessings that you can give your family and your kids, but teaching people to be committed and involved in the body of Christ is the greatest gift you give anybody. You know, parents who they just get up and half the time they don't even go to church, like what message do they send their kids? Church is a necessity. The greatest gift you give your kids is that every week they show up and they go to church because one day when you're dead and gone, a person who's committed to fellowship and functioning in the body of Christ will always have people to speak into their life. Whatever you don't teach them, if they know how to pick and be involved in a spiritually faithful church, there will be somebody to teach them the things that you didn't teach them. When they start to struggle with sin and you're not there, there will be somebody else to reach into your life. One day if they're struggling with sin and you're talking to them, there will be somebody else that will also approach them. And hopefully they will also learn to be a part of that process of pursuing spiritual faithfulness. It's, I, I could say this I don't know how many times, but it's why online church is not enough. I'm thankful for it. It is a blessing that when people can't come here because they're struggling or they're afraid or those kinds of things, the fact that they can watch online is a wonderful blessing. That is not a long-term way to live your life. We have to be plugged in relationally, and this is part of it. So let's read this, 2 Samuel 12, 1. This is so amazing, and it's powerful, and it's God's love. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is God reaching into David's life, saying, I love you. You are a wandering sheep, and I'm not going to leave you off on your own. I am going to send somebody, but this is God reaching out. Now think about that. When people address sin in our life, when people see us wandering and they talk to us, our response to them is, in fact, our response to God himself. He's the one who sends people. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor, and the rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And, he used to, and it used to eat morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, a few th powerful things here. God sends Nathan. Now, I just want you to think about this. You're Nathan, and God sends you to the king. What did David do the last time somebody might find something out? He killed the person. And now God's going to tell you, go talk to David. Nathan decides to go, even though I'm just telling you, his life was on the line. Sometimes we don't want to go talk to people. Why? But when God sent Nathan, he went even though it could have cost him his life. A lot of times we won't go talk to people because we're afraid they won't like us. 
We need to go when God sends us, and Nathan went. The other thing is you see Nathan's heart for David. He's trying to communicate. He's actually going to tell him a story that he can relate to. David was a shepherd. He knew what it meant to love a sheep and to take care of a sheep. And, and so David's just picturing, man, this, this sheep is his pet. He loves it. It eats from his food. His kids love this. And so David's heart is connected to the story about a sheep. And, and so you could see that, that Nathan is trying to connect. He's going to help David have an emotional response to something. And then he's going to open up his eyes and say, David, that's you. And the sin that David had blinded himself to, all of a sudden he's going to see from a different light. And so you see that Nathan and God are speaking to, to David in a way that will be influential for him. And when we look at, it's just crazy, like in this, it's crazy because he drops this word in there. And he says that, uh, that this sheep was like a daughter to him. And I, I've mentioned this in the past, but the Hebrew word for sheep is bath. And Bathsheba's name obviously is Bathsheba. And you just, you read this story, it was like a bath to him. And you just think, how did David not make the connection? Then all of a sudden, David's going to, he's going to respond to this. Look at verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, this is an amazing thing, and there's so much going on there that we don't fully see, but, but you remember the Pharisees, right? Um, they said things but didn't do them. David's going to be indignant toward a person who stole a sheep without any concept. You just stole someone's wife. He's going to say the person deserves to die. Here's another thing, too. You know, Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 7, where it says, don't judge. Don't look at the speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own eye. Is that not a description of David? Here's the crazy thing. As you read through the Old Testament, there are all kinds of consequences for stealing. Like, um, you got to repay, repay whatever you stole plus a fifth. You've got to repay something sevenfold. Like there's all these different laws about what do you do when you steal something. Remember Zacchaeus? He says, I'm going to repay seven times what I've stolen. You want to know what is so amazing about King David? Is he actually responds with specific accuracy regarding God's law. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. When David says he needs to repay four sheep, he didn't just pick that number out of the air. He can, quote, he can quote chapter and verse. This is what God says should be done in this situation. An amazing thing that you'll have people sometimes who can quote scripture and they can read you this verse and they can read you that verse, but there's this massive gap between their life and obedience. So David is great at applying Scripture to other people, but not so great when it comes to applying it to himself. You know, this is an example of how faithful believers can slip. 
Here's the next thing. We're going to see that the path back is first the way that God uses the body of Christ, the way he uses other believers in our lives. Here's a second thing is he, connect, he correctly diagnoses the heart. David says this in verse 7. He says to David, Nathan says to David, you are the man. And then God is going to tell him what went wrong. See, from the outside, we can see those external things, but God's now going to address his heart. Remember the things the Pharisees never worked on? Well, God's going to work on his heart. Look what he says here. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. God just says, David, I'm your provider. Look at all that I have given you, and you weren't satisfied. And even when you wanted more, you didn't ask me. I would have given you more. You decided to take it for yourself. Ultimately, every sin problem is a sin problem in our relationship with the Lord. It's when we don't see God right, when we don't think rightly about God, and that works its way out into other things. That's why we work on our heart, not just our behavior. And then he's going to go on, and he's going to define what David has done. Look at verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord. He doesn't say, oh, you ignored it, you forgot about it. He says, you despised my word to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Ignoring God's word is ignoring God. And when a person doctrinally just says, yeah, I, I'm going to take a different view of this passage, instead of saying, no, I want to humbly understand what God is saying, when you just disregard what God says, you are dis disregarding God himself. When God gives us wisdom in scripture and we disregard it, 1 Thessalonians 4, where God says God's will is your um, sexual faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians 4 through 8, that passage ends with whoever disregards this has disregarded God. And so he just says, David, you despised my word. You committed these sins. You despised me. You've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, and I want you to notice all the times God says, I will. See, this is a lot of people, we, we just go, yeah, no, God's going to forgive us. It's all going to be fine. Nothing will go wrong. You can sin all you want. Just, just say you're sorry and life will continue as normal. Instead of saying, no, under no circumstances, disregard God. Never disobey God. That will bring tragedy and pain and sorrow into your life. No, nah, there's plenty of people. I don't, I, yeah, just ask God to forgive you. You're good. Let's walk and live a sinful life because God's gracious and merciful. I want you to see what God says here about I will. That says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. 
I will take your wives before the eyes before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he will lie with your wives in the sight of the son for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel remember Galatians 6 7 don't be deceived God is not mocked whatever a person sows that they will reap we need to take seriously our sin against God and disregarding what God says Um, So he proclaims these consequences. By the way, four of David's kids die young. Um, The baby, this first child, is going to die. Absalom is going to kill, Absalom's going to kill his brother Amon. Absalom's hair is going to get caught in a tree and he's going to get killed after he tries to overthrow his dad. And then his son Solomon is going to kill his other son Adonijah because he tried to overthrow his, his brother after he's anointed king. So death never departs, killing never defa- departs from David's house. His own house does evil to him as Absalom tries to overthrow him. His wives will be taken publicly. By the way, that's his son who takes his concubines and sleeps with them on the roof of the temple, as, uh, on the roof of the palace, as a way to say, I'm the new king. I have the wives of the old king. And God's enemies are going to blaspheme. So here's the amazing thing. Man, it sounds pretty bad, right? We need to recognize that. And I just want to tell you guys, there are, there are things, there are consequences in my life. I am so thankful for God's love, his grace, his compassion, his forgiveness, his kindness. I'm so thankful for that. But there are things in my life and there are ways that I have harmed myself in my younger years by disobeying God. And if I could go back in history, I'm thankful for those things. They've informed my ministry to other people. They've informed my discipleship toward my own kids. How do I help them not do the dumb things I did? How do I help them not to think the way I was thinking? So God's used those things for good. But if I could go back and hit delete, there are things I would go back and delete from my life. That's part of our ministry. For those of us who have been unfaithful, That's part of our ministry to other people is to help them not do the same things. But here's the amazing thing is that there is repentance and restoration. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Sometimes we say that forgiveness doesn't remove all the consequences of sin, but it removed some God's restoration and forgiveness in David's life is amazing. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And so we find out that God afflicts this child, and it says that David is praying and fasting for seven days, begging God that this child won't die. And then when the child dies, you know what David does? He goes into the temple and he worships. He doesn't say, oh God, this is unfair. Why'd you do this? How could you let me suffer? I said, sorry, I'm asking for forgiveness. No, he went and he worshiped. When you read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Lord, you are righteous when you judge. Any suffering that I have in my life, I deserve. 
but thank you for forgiving me. You know, when we think about God's forgiveness, I'm going to wrap it up with two things and want to remind you something. God's forgiveness is based on the character of God. And one of the most powerful elements of this story, it is never too late to repent. It is never too late to go back to God. He can take utterly broken things, broken lives, and put them back together. This is a powerful warning, but it's an amazing encouragement. When you sin and you think, there's no way this could be put back, here's what I want you to know. God can put it back. There is no restoration to this situation. I want you to know God can restore you. And he does it for David. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, not because David deserved it, but for my own sake, I will not remember your sins. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You can get north and you can get south, but you cannot get east or west. That's infinite. And 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to say a couple quick things about God's restoration for David. This is amazing. God actually restores this relationship and he blesses the relationship between David and Bathsheba. How can that happen? I don't know. It's just not right. But God blesses that. Like what happened is amazing. And this first child dies, but their next son is Solomon, who is the next ruler of Israel, who is in Jesus' genealogy. God blesses their marriage. They have this unique relationship. They never should have been married. And yet God takes that broken situation. He disciplines them, but he blesses where they are. And they have a close relationship for the rest of their life. The other thing that he does, this is just amazing, is God's disposition toward David. You know, throughout the book of Kings, every time there's a new king, um, God just says, oh, this was a wicked sin. He wasn't like David, who David had a heart for me. He was a wicked king. Or this was a really good king, but his heart wasn't as good as David's heart was. And when God looks back at David, he affirms him, he loves him. And actually, there's one, one situation, 1 Kings uh, eleven four. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from God, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was his father David. In 1 Kings fifteen four, it's talking about another king, and it just says, uh, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything he commanded him all the days of his life except in the situation with Uriah the Hittite. And so David is blessed, he's forgiven. And so what's the challenge in this? As the church, we need to be diligent to warn people. You need to take God's warnings diligently, but we need to reflect God's love, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, and God's restoration God put David's life back together. He can put your life back together no matter what. And we need to be a church that communicates to people. No matter what goes wrong, God can put your life back together.
Let me pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word and just for this powerful story. Lord, help us to live this out rightly. Lord, we just um, thank you for the mercy that we have received through Christ, for your love, for your faithfulness. God, help us to represent that well in your name. Amen.